0: This evening I'd like to reflect on the theme of intimacy. One way of defining or describing the nature of a Buddha is as someone who has come to the end of seeking. Someone who's come to the end of searching. think one way of describing an enlightened heart is a heart that is really free from the painfulness of lack, of incompleteness. Now Siddhartha, before his enlightenment under the Bodhi tree, was a heroic seeker, disappointed with his life and disappointed with all he had, as lovely as it was he discovered it did not cool or console his aching sense of there being something missing or something lacking. So he did exactly what we tend to do with disappointment and a sense of lack. He got busy. He got busy seeking experiences, seeking transcendence, seeking happiness and peace, seeking to understand what it meant to be truly free. And he sought all of those everywhere but where he was and with who he was. He sought them outside of his mind, outside of his heart, outside of his body, outside of his mind in relationships and feeling separate and apart from all that he longed for. He sought for the end of that longing, separate and apart from himself. Through suppression, through ascetic practices, through disdain, through disconnection, and he came full circle. In the end of his search, he returned to the very places that he'd fled from, Where else could he understand what it meant to be free, apart from his body, mind, heart, and life? And we all know that wherever we go, these are what we take with us. And he came back to all of those, really, to find the end of seeking. And the turning point for Siddhartha was remembering a time when he was a young boy, and sitting on a hillside looking down on his father's fields, watching a farmer plow. And he remembered in that moment how he felt this very sublime sense of peace, of contentment, of ease of heart, a very deep sense of calm. And he remembered in that moment the sense that it was enough, it was complete unto itself, nothing to be added, nothing to be lost, nothing to be gained, reflected that this was perhaps just a small glimpse of an enlightened mind, just a small glimpse of intimacy and freedom. And remembering this, he took his seat under the Bodhi tree. But he didn't take his seat under the Bodhi tree thinking, you know, wouldn't it be a lucky accident if (laughs) enlightenment came marching along? Actually, in taking his seat under the Bodhi tree, he resolved to sit there until his blood ran cold, if that was what it took to understand what it meant to be free. And he turned his attention to everything that he'd rejected, tried to disconnect from understanding or really sensing that if liberation was not to be found there amid that complex life, where else could it be found? And it was actually in some ways really simple what he discovered or how he described it. Attending to his body, his mind, his heart, his life, he saw so clearly and so deeply that there is sorrow, that there is a cause of sorrow that there is an end of sorrow and a path to that end. And actually through that understanding, he came to the end of seeking. And he got up from the Bodhi tree, and he wasn't overly modest. And he said, I've done what needs to be done. I've come to the end of, pa- end of the path, understood what needs to be understood. I've understood profound and limitless liberation. In fact, the story goes that uh, the first, uh, leaving the Bodhi tree, the first person, he, you know, he just met this casual wanderer on the road, you know, some guy going about his daily business. And he came up to him and said, I'm the Tathagata. You know, I know, unexcelled liberation. This guy looked at him and said, well, whatever, you know, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> Now, curiously, at this point, the Buddha didn't turn into a statue. (laughs) He didn't move to a cave. He didn't retire from life. He didn't stop questioning. He didn't stop deepening. He didn't stop commitment. He didn't stop engaging so deeply with the world, with people. Instead, he taught, he cared, he lived a vital and creative life. He didn't turn away from suffering and say, well, you know, lucky me, too bad, the rest of you. (laughs) He knew that the only response was compassion. But he was very clear about coming to the end of seeking. It's very easy to idealize the story, but I do think it's important to really... um, See that Siddhartha's story is in so many ways also our story. The story from, of the journey from estrangement and disconnection to intimacy. The story of the journey from, of, from resistance and blame and fear to acceptance. We can trace our own journey from a sense of lack and incompleteness, the steps we take towards freedom. And perhaps really the heart of Siddhartha's story is that it is really an invitation to all of us to really question, to really explore what would it mean for us to come to the end of seeking. What would it mean for us to come to the end of discontent? When we look at our lives, it can seem in a way as if our whole life is, has been a search. Sometimes a very creative one. Sometimes a very vital and alive search for depth, for understanding, uh, for connectedness. And sometimes our life has been a search that is driven by fear and discontent. And when that's so, we don't obviously seek for something that we already have. We seek for all that we believe that we don't have. A different, better mind or body. A different, better life or experience. Search for love, for perfection, for safety, for refuge. And, of course, we tend to seek for them apart from where and who we are. And then this is the tension and the pain in our seeking because it's later, it's after, it's somewhere else, it's future, it's wish, it's hope, it should, need is often the vocabulary underlying our seeking. And in that, <coughs> in that we tend to believe that our, the end of our seeking, the end of our search, we tend to believe that it has many conditions. Getting something that we don't have, becoming something we are not. Getting rid of everything that seems to get in the way. Some of you know the story of Milarepa. He was one of the early great Tibetan teachers. And he very much did boot camp style practice. He lived in the solitude of the high mountains in a cave on a diet of nettles. By the way, you might think that that's only a story. My first teacher... When he was a very poor, young monk, he lived on nettles. Because, you know, if you came from a poor family in Tibet and you had no supporters, you really didn't have much to eat, so he lived on nettles. Fine tradition. And they called him skinny raptan. And then when he got a Rinpoche to train and he got more support and more food, they called him fat raptan. Anyway, Milarepa went out of his cave one day (laughs) to gather firewood to cook his nettles. And while he was gone, a number of vicious demons came to inhabit his cave. When he came back, he was appalled. All of these demons messing up his retreat space. So he tried to negotiate with them. He tried to frighten them. He tried to overcome them. them. He sang to them. He offered them mantras and blessings. He prayed for help. He tried to pretend the demons weren't there. And one by one, the demons did disappear before this charm offensive until there was only one demon left the most vicious and the most fierce of all the demons. And all of his strategies exhausted. Milarepa confessed that he could do no more. And in the end, he placed his head in the mouth of the demon and said, welcome, stay a while, bring your friends, move in. And like all good Buddhist stories, this one has a happy ending. And the demon in the face of Milarepa's surrender was transformed into a rainbow. Now, I suspect on some level, (laughs) some vague level, (laughs) we can all, all, all see ourselves in Milarepa's story. Abandonment, avoidance, despair, resistance, That's other names for all these strategies. Part of all of our lives, it can be so hard to be near that which is unpleasant, that which is painful or threatening. It can be so hard to be near grief and sadness and a sense of lack and heartache. And the movement have disconnection, as you might have noticed is such a habitual impulse. It happens so quickly. Notice that when there's pain, when there's the unpleasant, how quickly we move into fantasy, into strategy, into the next moment. So hard to be with the difficult. Aversion can be such a feature of our lives. It's not hard for us to see that anxiety and aversion are actually the proximate causes of disconnection. So we disconnect from thoughts that are hard to be with, from emotions that are difficult to bear. We disconnect from people that we struggle with, from painful feelings that just seem too much to accommodate. And yet they follow us, don't they? I mean, at some point we actually start to get a sense of the futility of disconnection as a life strategy. And the impulse to abandon, really what it does is it strengthens aversion and anxiety. With each moment of abandonment, it is as if we are feeding our demons solidifying aversion and anxiety. Now intimacy is sometimes said to be the first step on the path of liberation. To learn really to be at home in our bodies, our minds, our lives. The Zen teacher once said that enlightenment is to be intimate with all things. Intimacy is a way of slowing down the impulse of abandonment. uh, Intimacy is a way of learning to turn the tide of aversion. Intimacy is an antidote to aversion and ill will in all its guises. And I I really feel that aversion is something very important for us to contemplate. It's another name for fear. It's another name for resistance. And such a powerful force in our lives. Because certainly that aversion is the root of the estrangement, the alienation, the disconnection we feel. Aversion is the root of intolerance of judgment, of impatience that so disturbs our heart. And the Buddha did speak about learning to understand aversion and fear is actually the path to fearlessness. Now we all know if in our experience that aversion is like a reflex. You know, it's like if someone taps your knee in the right place and your leg jumps out. You know, aversion is kind of a reflex like that. You know, we only sometimes need just a little encounter with the unpleasant. I mean, it doesn't need to be very big. You know, we're not talking about seismic events here, you know. But a little encounter with the unpleasant and like this tide of aversion can just arise towards others or towards ourselves. And when we really, you know, that's we see it's the beginning of abandonment. You know, I saw this very clearly in the early years of my own practice when I really treated the world as an enemy, as an intruder, a thief threatening to steal my calm. You know, and I've told you the story, you know, just kind of retreating further and further out, higher and higher into mountains to try and get away from anything that could possibly disturb my meditation all I was left with was the monkeys who would jump up and down on the tin roof of my hut. And finding myself out there one day screaming at these monkeys for disturbing my meditation was actually a bit of a wake-up call. You know, like aversion had really... You know, aversion was a much bigger problem than the monkeys. Hmm? I think aversion, when we look at it really closely and fearlessly, is actually a terrible suffering. It's kind of like a toxic virus that spreads through our body and mind to infect our lives and our relationships. You can use aversion and fear interchangeably. Fear is like a toxic virus that spreads through our lives to infect our lives and relationships. Aversion is also the most powerful home of me and I and you and them. So freedom asks us to be intimate with, to find the willingness to explore and understand what aversion is. And this is not vague or theoretical. Because most of us do not have to struggle very hard to find moments of aversion. We could just ask ourselves, really right now, what are the demons that still live in our own caves? Hmm? And I'm sure we've all explored the same strategies of, as Milarepa, trying to ignore them, trying to negate them. We may even off, have offered our most stalwart demons endless wishes of loving kindness with gritted teeth. We have probably all gone the pathway of trying to explain to ourselves and to others how appropriate our aversion is. (laughs) That other people are aversive types, but mine is righteous. (laughs) At times we've exhausted all the strategies, and still a demon or two remains in our cave. And it might be a person that we've struggled with who's hurt us in the past and it's hard to bear in the present. It might be a politician. (laughs) (laughs) Our demon might be a lingering illness. Our demon may be a particular mental loop that we do over and over again. There might be a disappointment we can't let go of. And intimacy is not about being free from the difficult, but intimacy is about being free within the difficult. And sometimes we really do inch our way towards intimacy. When we do really sense the terrible, terrible torment and suffering in our world. When we do sometimes sense the depth of perhaps our own woundedness, it can feel at times just to be too much to bear, too much to open to. But even that we're asked to be intimate with, to embrace, just that reality, that in this moment it's just too much to open. And in sometimes intimacy we learn in bite-sized pieces. You know, in, in times of calm, we might actually invite our demons to come forward. We might think that the small moments of irritation and anxiety and intolerance we experience don't matter. But they are the seeds of great intolerance and great hatred and great impatience. And they are too often fed just by our neglect of them or our dismissal of them. Intimacy begins not with blame or judgment, but with willingness and interest, with learning to have a dialogue with the difficult. Learning to have a dialogue with the difficult. There's a Tibetan prayer that says... Grant that I may be given appropriate difficulties, that my heart may be awakened and my path of compassion fulfilled. You know what appropriate difficulties are? The ones we have right now. Mm -hmm. Now what does it mean for us to have a dialogue with the difficult? our worst enemy, our aching back, any demon. First, it means finding the willingness to be steadfast, the willingness to stay present, not to flee, because we see that really we only hate from a distance and that we only learn to love and to soften by staying close. And we may begin to discover that the size of our enemy is equal to the size of our aversion and fear. When I was a child growing up in a family with a father that was really too often angry in a very frightening way, and sometimes, many times, it would seem for the children in my family that his anger was so big that it would fill the whole house, sometimes it seemed to fill the whole world. And it seemed so powerful, so powerful that, you know, we would curl up and hide. And now my father is an old man, getting much smaller every year. And he's actually pretty much still angry, but it's actually changing a little, much to my surprise. But something has changed. You know, what I see in him now is his loneliness, his terrible, terrible fear of being out of control, his alienation, his loneliness. And somehow this I can have a dialogue with. I've really reflected on this kind of lineage of rage or lineage of aversion. You see, one of the lessons I've really learned about aversion in my own life is that it only pushes the world away. It only ever pushes other people away. That every time there's a sort of consenting to impatience or irritation or intolerance, it's pushing the world away. I really, really genuinely have come to understand in my own life and in my own practice that I actually can't afford aversion. That I can't afford ill will that the great anxieties and the small anxieties, the great angers and the small angers, that there really are all the arms and legs of the same demon. And learning to stay close, we begin to see that our demon, I feel, our demon and our suffering certainly there are people in the world that are unwholesome and desperately unskillful and desperately confused. But our our demons are often not so much in the people and events of our lives, the struggles in our lives. But our demon that truly makes us suffer is the power of our own resistance and fear and aversion. Mary Oliver has a wonderful poem that is called A Visitor. She says, My father, for example, who was young once in blue-eyed, returns on the darkest of night to the porch and knocks wildly at the door. And if I answer, I must be prepared for his waxy face, for his lower lips swollen with bitterness. And so for a long time I did not answer but slept fitfully between his hours of rapping. But finally there came the night when I rose out of my sheets and stumbled down the hall. The door fell open and I knew I was saved and could bear him, pathetic and hollow, with even the least of his dreams frozen inside him and the meanness gone. And I greeted him and asked him into the house and lit the lamp and looked into his blank eyes in which at last I saw what a child must love. I saw what love might have done had we loved in time. No, it is not only the difficult people that we push away, but so too, too often do we turn this terrible power of aversion and resistance upon ourselves with judgment and disdain and self-blame and guilt and scorn and as Narayan said last night, it's not the teaching. But the Buddha says, hatred does not cease by hatred, but by love alone does hatred cease. We do see within ourselves a potentiality for anger and fear and aversion. It actually lives alongside our potentiality for kindness and for fearlessness and for love. And in the intimacy of mindfulness, it is the willingness really to attend to all those small and large moments of aversion and ill will that we tend to neglect. That's the beginning of intimacy. But it's also the willingness to attend to the small and large moments of kindness and generosity, and love, and patience in ourselves that we too easily neglect. And I feel sometimes, you know, in this teaching, we hear so much emphasis on letting go of the unwholesome, and we feel the power of the unwholesome within ourselves, that we forget this other part of the cultivation of that which is wholesome, that which is liberating, and that which is freeing. And to really notice that in ourselves, You know, we can have a terrible tendency to sort of be unequal in how we weight what we see. You know, weighting so heavily that which we disdain and forgetting what the Buddha calls the beautiful mind, the beautiful heart. And these moments of kindness, these moments of generosity, the moments of patience and love we meet, these are like the foundation upon which we build and nurture all that is healing and all that is liberating. And it is so important to give them attention. To be willing to have a dialogue with the unpleasant, the painful and the difficult, it's, it's actually a great leap for us to make in our heart. But to begin to have a dialogue with the difficult is to have a relationship with it, with that difficult person, that difficult event, that difficult feeling in ourselves. It is, to have that dialogue is the beginning of relationship. It is the beginning of intimacy. And it's actually the beginning of the end of being governed by the difficult. I came across this very lovely story. A man told the story of how his heart was transformed after an accident in which he lost his sight. He spoke of the power of touch, touching the tomatoes in the garden, touching the walls of the house, the materials of a curtain or a clod of earth as surely seeing them as fully as eyes can see. But he said it's more than seeing, it is leaning in, tuning in on them and allowing the life they hold to connect with one's own life like electricity. To put it differently, this means an end to living in front of things and a beginning of living with them. Never mind if these words sound shocking, for this is love. You cannot keep your hands from loving what they have really felt, moving continuously, bearing down, and finally detaching themselves, the last, perhaps the most significant motion of all. And then this is the kind of dialogue and the kind of intimacy that we are asked to have with all that we hate and fear, to know them deeply to touch them deeply, and to let them go. Now the story of Milarepa had, as I mentioned, a happy ending with the demon being transformed into a rainbow, but let's change the story ending. What would Milarepa's story look like if the demon quite gladly took up his invitation? moved in, brought its friends, what then would be asked of him? What would be asked if the difficulty we experience now is going to be with us? For we do not know how long. What would be asked of us? First of all, understanding. It's what the Buddha called the first noble truth that the nature of samsara is unsatisfactory, unpredictable, unreliable. It is at times uncomfortable, painful, even tormenting. It's never going to be perfect. Discomfort is actually part of samsara. And we could all actually exhaust ourselves to death trying to devise new strategies to make the imperfect perfect and to make discomfort disappear. Or we can turn towards it. But the first noble truth is not the end of the story. second noble truth and the third, the end of suffering, the end of ill will, the end of struggle, with the Buddha called Nibbana. And Nibbana, the end of suffering, is not outside of the first noble truth. It is the freedom within it. Just as Milarepa would be asked to get to deeply know his demons, we are asked to find the same intimacy, and out of intimacy is born acceptance. And please understand the way that we use the word acceptance. never, never refers to any kind of passivity or resignation or despair or condoning of the unjust, the causes of suffering. But acceptance is to stop arguing with the way things are. Just to let go of the argument. Acceptance then is to make peace with, to befriend, to deeply surrender aversion and resistance and ill will, to know the freedom of heart that can invite our demons to stay a while. And it is that very invitation that makes our cave boundless and vast and spacious. Sometimes we stumble our way towards acceptance, learning to calm our arguments, learning to let go of our likes and our dislikes and our views and our stories and our impatience and intolerance. Acceptance learning just to lay down the burden. I frankly have struggled in fear and aversion. The life of this moment that says that the life of this moment must be other than it is. The deep willingness to put down the I and the you. And then there is just now something to be cared for, something to be tended, something to be looked after. It's just now something to be understood. Acceptance is made much simpler by, as I say, putting down the arguments, because the argument is really the story of I and you. It's a story of resistance and blame that just fans the fire of aversion. And if we can put down that argument, then aversion's just aversion. Fear is fear. This is the ball of delusion we're all asked to tend to. And we can know that really starkly and really simply. It's not easy but we could start to know that just so simply and really see that acceptance is actually fearlessness. Acceptance is fearlessness. Is standing firm in the midst of all that which is, not turning away from, not resisting, not blaming, that acceptance, I think in its deepest sense, is truly fearless. And it is a place where deep wisdom is born. Really look at what is it that makes someone or something feel unbearable? What is it that makes any part of ourselves, any part of our mind or body or heart, something to be resented or disdained? What is it that leads us to divide the world into friends and enemies, self and other? Now we might be tempted to say it's judgment But I think it's something deeper than just some fleeting, aversive thought. What's really often the kind of really crux of the struggle is view. View. Our view of ourselves, our view of others. It's a process here that actually we can track in our own experience. Born of perceptions... There are feelings, there are memories and associations. In fact, neurologically, the neurological pathways of perception and memory apparently are just the same. They walk down the same pathway. Born of perceptions and feelings and memories and associations, Clinging and aversion can be born and they're come into being something that we would call a view. Now example of this. Maybe we pass someone in the hall and we see them. First, you know, they really are just shape and form. And then we perceive them. I know that person. That's the person who has been shuffling beside me all week. As I don't like them, they've been interfering with my perfect meditation. In fact, I really just don't like them at all. A mindless person, in fact, they've probably been ruining everybody's retreat. Hmm? It's a view. It's just a view, isn't it? But with that view, we have fixed someone in our mind, but simultaneously we have fixed our own mind in aversion. Happening simultaneously. Suppose you're passing by a store window, and you know there's a sight of something that you really like, there's a pleasant feeling you really want it. You know, you've f- you formed the view this is a must. <laughs> you know, absolutely essential to my happiness. <laughs> we've fixed that into a view. We've invested it with the power to deliver happiness, but we've also fixed ourselves in the view of lack, completeness, simultaneously. It's happening. These views arising, I am, you are. And that view, whatever it is, stops us from seeing that person fully. Stops us from seeing ourselves fully. And it starts the story often that plays itself over and over again. And we see, you know, the big three that the Buddha talked about. Greed, anger, and delusion. Now, acceptance is actually the willingness to accept that our view can actually never tell the whole story of anything because our view is based upon those those several areas, both memory and association, aversion or craving, and a view of self. So how can that actually ever tell the whole story of anything? What it's doing is it's telling the story of the moment. And it's telling the story of clinging in the moment. That's all it's telling. So it's are telling the story of clinging in the moment. So it's actually never telling the truth about anything. It's the interesting? So every view is kind of really worth scrutinizing. You know, every time I say, I am, you are, this is, I need, I don't have, you know. Is it true? Is it actually true? It really is just the story of clinging. It's not the story of what is true. So intimacy and acceptance really asks us to exchange our view for a quality of not knowing and to invite investigation rather than clinging into our lives. Now, not knowing is actually the most difficult place for us to rest. We've probably all seen that. We just want to pin things down. You know, we just want to know. We want to be able to say, I know, feel I know, because then that seems like a sort of safety and a certain refuge. But it means actually that we surrender a great deal of openness and freedom. You know, some of my friends tell the story of Sun Sanim and Sun Sanim, saying that right, in the old days. Sun Sanim. In the old days, very. Uh, you know kind of stern zen teacher but he had a big thing about not knowing so when everybody would say to him say to him well what about this he said don't know you know and what about that you don't know you know and that was this kind of standard answer and the community sort of picked it up as became a cliche you know is it sunny today don't know you know (laughs) you know is there anything for lunch don't know you know so it becomes this kind of cliche thing But apart from cliche if we get beneath the cliche not knowing is actually what allows us to have a dialogue with the difficult. Mm -hmm. Because if we're very sure we know, we've already reached a conclusion. We have nothing to learn. So a sense of not knowing is what allows us to have a dialogue with the difficult, rather than to flee from it. And really, wise mindfulness and wise effort is a way of having a dialogue with this moment. Meeting the lovely, meeting the difficult. Meeting the difficult with fearlessness. We can ask what it needs. Does it need attention, generosity, love, forgiveness, patience? Are we being asked to cultivate what is not present? Are we being asked to let go of something that is present in the service of freedom? in the service of liberating our hearts, not outside of the difficult, but within it. Through intimacy, we begin to calm the agitation of our hearts. We begin to befriend. We begin to find just even glimmers of that fearlessness of acceptance and the wisdom of response. And intimacy, I think, really allows us to discover that freedom that the Buddha talks about so much, the freedom of not being governed, not being governed by anything, anywhere, resting within the freedom, maybe, of not clinging to anything. Intimacy, acceptance, responsiveness all really part of this journey of mindfulness, a journey that we make moment by moment, step by step, sometimes inching our way and sometimes actually really discovering the joy and the happiness of that willingness to be so wholeheartedly intimate with all things. If we have just a moment...